0: All right. Let's open this evening with a word of prayer. And as we do, um, let's be asking the Lord to help those of our church who are not able to be here this evening. A lot of different uh, little things going around, but to uh, be in prayer. Several of you came up to me about people that are ill or sick. And so if there's someone that you know of as we open, let's be praying <clears throat> for them tonight. And then if you have this evening's notes, there, you should have a little different-looking cover on it. Has today's date, as we start a new book of the Bible tonight, and uh, we'll ask the Lord to bless our time together. Lord, we praise you for who you are and your love to us. Um, we are uh, humbled <clears throat> that you call us your own, that you call us your children, and that we can know you and that we can. Um, grow in your likeness that we can be like you as you created us to be and that as you teach us of yourself uh, you teach us of our own lives and so we ask that you do that tonight as we look at your word uh, with those that cannot be here this evening a number of people in our church of families that have had uh, illness recently we just ask that you encourage them maybe as they listen or even just as they open your word in the next few days that you encourage them and lift them up and bring them back to us quickly. Uh, Be with our missionaries this week. We've had a number of uh, missionaries we've been praying for over the last month. We think particularly of uh, Justin Hayes and uh, his family, his dad's funeral as it's tomorrow. And just pray that you'd uh, guide and undertake for them, help them as they travel back and forth for that from Spain. And uh, we just pray that you'd undertake for them and then others that are ministering even now in different places in the country and then uh, throughout uh, what will be our nighttime throughout the world. And uh, we just pray that you would uh, encourage them and help them to know and understand we are praying for them and love them as well. Uh, Be with us this evening as we seek to honor you. May our, our prayer, our songs, our hearts, and our obedience worship you tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. You shall be. Bible tonight, if you would, and find, I would say, the book, most likely in your Bible. It's a page of 2 John tonight. 2 John, you can find it in between 1 and 3 John. It's great how those that compiled the order of Scripture did that for us so that we would not be overly confused. But find the second epistle of John, not the second chapter of John. But the Epistle of John. So, near the end of your copy of Scripture, most likely. And you have 1st, 2nd, 3rd, John, Jude, Revelation. So, if you have to, you can start the back and work your way forward to find your place tonight in the book or the Epistle, second one that we have recorded (coughs) from the Apostle John. And as you find your place there, you're going to notice very quickly something about the book of Second John, and that it is very short uh, in comparison to even the book of Esther, which is not an extremely long book, uh, but I think we did Esther, I don't know, I think we did it in six weeks, and uh, so we took six weeks to do uh, ten chapters. The last two uh, weeks, we did three chapters each, and so we were kind of flying through. We covered what is the longest verse in Scripture in terms of the number of words in it. Uh, we, we've done that in the last few weeks, and so' a, a total change of pace and we're going to the shortest, or actually sec, second short, depending on how you look at it. This is the shortest um, book of Scripture in terms of number of verses. Third John's the shortest in terms of number of actual words in the original. And so you see there a little note at the top. It says that both, second and third John, contain about 250, around 250 Greek words, so in its original, there's about 250 words in each of these books, and I think that sometimes, because of their brevity, we lose sight of their importance. I think there's a couple different reasons that we don't always emphasize the books of Second and Third John, and I'll give you a couple of them. Their brevity, for one, uh, it feels like by the time you start studying, then you're already done. Uh, but you're going to see, we're going to take a couple weeks, actually, and walk through uh, both of these books. So we went from going through three chapters in a week, and tonight we're going to do like three verses in the week. But as we walk through this, hopefully we'll see the importance. I think we sometimes belittle the importance because of their brevity, sometimes because they're addressed to individual people. And you notice that in the first verse of 2 John. It says, uh, the elder unto the elect lady, the first verse of uh, 3 John says the elder unto the well-beloved Gaius. And so sometimes, anytime you kind of enter into someone else's conversation, if the circumstance itself doesn't really pertain to you, the more specific something is, sometimes the more that we tend to ignore it. Uh, Second John, you'll see in a moment, has a lot of things that are repeated from 1 John. In fact, 7 out of the 13 verses that you have recorded there, seven of them are not exactly word for word from 1 John, but are the words of 1 John. Uh, In other words, he sort of paraphrases and just says the exact principle in a slightly different way, seven out of the 13 verses of 2 John copy really the theme that he is giving us in John, and so sometimes because of their repetition, sometimes because of the specific nature of who it is written to and what it is about, sometimes because of their brevity, but for one reason or another, these are two books that we don't often just run to in our devotions. It's not somewhere like Psalms that we're studying consistently. We just don't think about these two epistles quite that often, but they're both important. As we said with Esther All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable to us for doctrine, for reproof, and for correction. So we're going to look at uh, these couple books over the next few weeks and seek to apply them to our life. I kind of chose to deal with this or do this now in terms of when we're going to study these. You know, if you were here on uh, Sunday morning, we began walking through Matthew 15, we're just a little... More than halfway through the book of Matthew, and we've come to Matthew 15. And what you find in Matthew 15 is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees come to Jesus with a disagreement. Remember that as we studied it? We won't repreach all of Sunday's message. If you haven't heard it, you can find it on online there because it goes a little bit with our theme tonight. But the theme of Matthew 15, he has this disagreement with the Pharisees. The Pharisees come to him with a very specific rule that Had been taken out of the context of scripture and misapplied remember that they had taken the old testament law of washing that was for priests and for lepers and for the priests that had touched dead animals they took those washings and they started to apply that to themselves and they broadened the scope of scripture so they took scripture and they widened its application as for what it was intended and they applied it to people that it wasn't intended to be for and they, they had drawn that out, and over hundreds of years, this hand-washing ceremony had become, in their minds, a biblical, scriptural command that they were following. And remember, they had this contradiction with Jesus, and uh, they say, why don't your apostles do what the elders tell them to do? They say, wash your hands a certain way. And Jesus' reply to them was, why don't you do what God tells you to do? And he gave them the example that they had abused the law of honoring your father and mother and they found a little loophole that wasn't in scripture and his remember his wording to them was this he says your problem is that your mouth sounds great that you obey the lord your heart though is far from him and remember the cause that they that jesus identified he says here's why your heart is far from god you teach as doctrines the commandments that men have given he says you teach like it's scripture the opinions of mankind, or of your teachers, or of your elders. And he says, it has drawn your heart to focus on your rule, or drawn your heart to focus on the specificness of how you are living outwardly, and inwardly you have completely moved away from the Lord. And so in Second John, we're going to find another type of conflict or controversy, and it goes a little, not in the same exact vein, but in how do we handle these things so let's give a little bit of background to the book you see there a good portion of your notes give that detail we won't spend long on the background but i do want to give you some things so that you can understand it as we walk through it's written by the apostle john now how do we know that because look if you would in the first verse the elder unto the elect lady and her children whom i love in the truth and not i only but also all they that have known the truth. Now, there is nowhere in this first verse and through the rest of the chapter or the book that identifies John as the author. It's not a typical greeting where he would give his name. However, all throughout church history, from the very people that received the first letter, all of the early church history, this has never really been in contention. It's always just been known. John wrote this. And if you get into the technical detail of it and you're to read some of the original language in the gospel of john and you read first john and then you read this you can see very clearly it's the same person writing it so you have john is writing it and he's writing it in about 90 to 95 a.d which makes it one of the last three or four books of the bible ever written in fact he wrote probably all four of the last books that were written first john second john third john and the book of revelation were probably the last four Written, The Gospel of John was probably written just five or six years before this particular letter. So with that in mind, thinking through this, let's read the chapter, and then we'll give you some more of the background. It says, we just read verse 1, to the elder, uh, the elder, that's what he calls himself here, unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. For the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us, and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and love. Those three verses, that's sort of his salutation, his introduction. So if you take that as his introduction, you'll see the verse and the last verse is sort of a conclusion. You'll see it's not a very lengthy book. Look at me at verse four, now he's going to get into the body of his letter. I rejoiced greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth, as we have uh, received a commandment from the Father. And now I beseech thee, lady. Now that's not a derogatory term. It's actually a very noble term. There's he's saying. It sounds a little different when we read it. But it says, I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that, as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers, here he's going to say, start into the purpose of why he's writing. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought. But that which we receive, a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ, hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. <clears throat> if there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. Having many things to you write unto you, to write unto you. I would not write with uh, paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. The children of thy elect sister greet thee. Amen. Lord, help us as we study your word um, these next couple weeks in this particular passage of scripture, that you'd help us to apply it to our lives and see what it is and how it is that you would like to change us. And we trust your Holy Spirit to do so in Jesus' name. Amen. So you see there, as we mentioned, we have a book written by the Apostle John, and you think, how in the world did this letter end up in the canon of Scripture? Uh, How how in the world did, of all the things that could have been placed in there, why is this put there for us? You have uh, big doctrinal dissertation books like the book of Romans, you have church history like the book of Acts, you have... Uh, the recordings of Jesus' life and ministry and his death and resurrection in the four gospel accounts. You have letters written to churches addressing the early church real problems in establishing and teaching them doctrine. And now you have a letter addressed to an individual lady about a very specific topic, and it's a very short book, so how did it end up there? I'll remind you, we've mentioned this before, but how do books get into the canon of Scripture? No one sat down and just picked and said, we're going to choose this one to go in the Bible. Remember, there's some qualifiers. It had to be written by someone who's a direct eyewitness of Jesus or someone who wrote on behalf of someone who is a direct eyewitness of Jesus. It has to record and it has to flow or... Uh, agree with the rest of Scripture. It can't have any contradiction to uh, what is in the Old Testament or the New Testament, and it has to be regularly accepted by the church as a whole throughout its history, especially that early history. And this book meets all of those qualifications. It's written by John, who's an eyewitness. It agrees with the rest of Scripture. And evidently, from very early on in its circulation, the church viewed this not just as John's message to a lady, but God communicating to his people how they were to act and respond. And so, with that, we have the book of 2 John. Notice, it is addressed first, I want you to notice something about it. It's addressed to the elect lady and her children. And there's a lot of discussion as to whether or not this is an individual lady uh, or a metaphorical title for the church. And I'll be very frank and honest with you. Throughout different years of studying this, and even throughout the last little bit, studying as we began to approach and preach this, I can kind of go back and forth sometimes on either one as to what I think. You take 50 commentaries and read 50 commentaries on 2 John, I almost guarantee 25 are going to say it's an individual woman, 25 are going to say it's a metaphor for a church, maybe the church church in Ephesus. You listen to different respected pastors and Bible teachers preach, they're going to split half and half on this. And so I'm going to give you a couple notes for each one. Some people that support it as being a church that it's written to, you say, well, why is this important? It can help us as we interpret it, but it also helps us establish this is not a doctrinal issue that needs to be argued over. Notice it says, it was during a very oppressive time in a period of Rome and so maybe some people say John wrote with anonymity. He didn't want to say the Christians in this city. That way if the letter were lost or the person carrying it uh, was arrested or taken, there was anonymity to it. It was uh, in a very oppressive time of the empire of Rome. Some say that many, uh, because many of the pronouns in it uh, are plural, when it refers to you, it's referring to a plural group of people. And so it could be addressed that way. Some say there are other places in Scripture that uh, the church is referred to with feminine titles. We know that the church is called the bride of Christ. And so it wouldn't be weird to call the church <coughs> a lady or here in these terms. Notice they argue that the children here are individual members. So it says, you can kind of picture it this way. He's writing to a church saying the elect lady and her children, the members of this church. And then they would say in verse number 10, so how do you argue It says, don't receive them into your house. What would that mean? It was literally churches met in houses. When they would gather to teach, to preach, and to pray and to worship together, they did not have a building. They did not own places. They met in houses. And so they say, well, it references someone's house. It's referring to the specific nature of how they met. All those can be reconciled in either direction. For instance, this is many of the pronouns are plural, Well, you notice verse 1 is addressed to the lady and her children, multiple people. Now, don't receive into your house. Obviously, she probably had a house as well. Notice, here's some ideas to why it probably is an individual woman. And I have begun to lean this direction. If you want my opinion, I think it's an individual. Here's why. There's nothing clearly said that makes us think that it is not there's nothing in scripture and in the rest of second john that really implies it's anything more than what john writes the letter would be redundant he had already sent first john just a short time before and now seven of the 13 verses are pretty much the same thing that he said in first john so it'd be kind of redundant to send first john to a church and then send a really short letter to the same church or group of churches saying almost the same thing the brevity of the letter There's no extended doctrinal teaching. That would seem to indicate he's talking to an individual person about a specific issue. And then while the church is referred to in feminine ways all throughout uh, the New Testament, yes, and Christians are called the children of God, the New Testament never refers to the church as the mother of God's children. And so to bring that metaphor into Scripture with no real context or explanation and no real precedent before would have been odd for John to do as well. And in verse 13, the children, notice it says not say the sister, your elect sister greets you. It says the children of thy elect sister, which seems to kind of imply he's writing to somebody. Hey, your nieces, nephews, whoever say hello, because it'd be odd to address one church as the sister and say here's a greeting from another church, but it's from their children. So there's not consistency there. But here's the important part to notice, and we underlined it neither interpretation hinders the message of the book of 2 John. And that's why we kind of covered both of those, is so that you'll understand neither one of those interpretations of 2 John is going to really change how you interpret it. And we're going to see that as we walk through the next couple weeks. Notice the purpose or the issue of the book. False teachers had tried to associate with the church and to receive hospitality from its members. We'll explain what that means in a moment but john is writing how to address this in the proper way historians record and we're going to uh, give you some specifics on that in a minute but they would record how itinerant teachers had sort of started to take advantage of the early church remember when we studied second corinthians and it talked about the false teachers that had come in to the church at corinth and one of the things that they had argued is well the people before you didn't pay them. They weren't even worthy of being paid. It says, we are great teachers. You know, we are uh, astute teachers. We are great teachers of the law. And remember, they said, they taught you this from scripture, whatever it may be. We even have another word from God to give you. And so we know that this is a common thing that was done in that day and age with communication not being as quick as it is even today and that kind of thing. Somebody could just show up at Uh, in a city, meet the Christians that were there, kind of work their way into it, say, well, I'm a teacher of God, I'm a prophet, I'm a teacher of God's Word as well, and I'd like to stay in your area for a while, but I don't have the money to just stay here, I'm on my way on business, but I would stay here and teach you my great ways if you'll give me a place to stay and just give me something to eat and let me kind of make a living here while I'm here, but I, I don't really have time to get a job and do all those things. And then they would travel on to the next place and they would abuse it. But the problem was they weren't really teachers of God. They were teachers of stuff, teachers of self. They would take little bits of truth and then they would add to it as though they had some other word of God. So there's a big problem in the church, in a lot of the early churches, with people coming in and doing this. And what we find in Second John is this has happened wherever this is, most likely it's probably in the church at Ephesus, and if it's written to an individual lady, the likelihood is that this is a woman who has received one of those false teachers into her house. So John must have gotten word, hey, look, there are false teachers. Let's say it's the city of Ephesus. There's false teachers in the city of Ephesus. They're abusing their their right to be there. They're not real Christians. They don't even believe in Christ as the incarnate son of God, and they're living there, and they're, they're, they're gleaning off of, they're taking advantage of the church. And so John writes to the church about that, but then it seems that he individually has written to this woman trying to help her see and understand how to handle the situation. So you have that. And notice, if you would, his <coughs> theme that he brings. In verse number one, he says, "Whom I right in the middle of the verse, whom I love in the truth. So notice the words love and truth connected there. Verse number uh, three, grace grace be with you, mercy and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and what? Love. Verse number four, I greatly rejoice that your children are walking in truth. Then look at verse number five, what's the commandment we should obey? It's the one that we love one another. And you see it all throughout this short little book. Truth and love, truth and love, truth and love. He marries them to one another and says, you live your life with both of these. And why is that important? Notice it says we're going to kind of state our theme that truth without love has no power. It's only brutality. But love that doesn't have truth has no character. And it ends up in hypocrisy. Truth minus love equals this cold orthodoxy. Love minus truth is empty emotionalism. And don't you see that in the world today? And Christians can even be that way sometimes toward the world. We have the truth, and we have no time for you, you bunch of foolish people. But then you also have others, Christians, or even in the world, that says we have love, and that means we're going to love and accept anything and everything, and there's no truth in it. So because there's no truth, there's also no help for the sin that invades our lives for the fact that we are sinners. And so either one without the other causes a struggle for the Christian. I'm going to hold to truth, and everyone that doesn't hold this same truth, I will not love. That's not what God commands. But at the same time, God does not command us to love and subtract from that the truth of His Word. But His truth informs our love. So how do we respond to the world around us? How do we respond to someone teaches a false true false doctrine how do we respond when there is disagreement even amongst believers we're going to look at that that love fortified by truth addresses teachers who sound christian but are not notice number two let's look at the verses as we walk through the greeting and the opening emphasis now we're going to get into the actual text that we have some background Why would this have been a concern of this one particular individual? We already hinted at it or uh, got to it a little bit, but the way that teachers have begun to abuse some of the hospitality of the early church, not just within the Christian church, but also within the Jewish world, hospitality was known as of virtue. In fact, within the Jewish terms or code, it was one of the six highest virtues that you could have, hospitality. And the word hospitality that they would use would literally mean love toward or kindness toward strangers. So it's not just hospitality to those that you know, but a virtue is we are hospitable to any that come before us. And for the Jew, even before Christianity, this was important because they were often exiles. And they wanted hospitality, and so then they they then would try to extend that to other Jews and sometimes then to other people. They would extend that great hospitality. Christians are commanded to have love and charity all throughout the New Testament. Love and charity, to be hospitable. It's even a qualification of an elder or a deacon that we are given to hospitality, kindness and love toward even those that we do not know. And so it appears that in this particular context that this lady here she is and she has gotten this instruction that she is to love that she is to be hospitable and that is of course not an easy thing to always do and so it's a virtue it shows a sign of growth in the life of a christian hebrews chapter 13 verse 2 even says don't neglect hospitality he says don't neglect hospitality to strangers remember he says for some in the past have even entertained angels unaware He says there's people that have shown hospitality to someone they didn't know, and they didn't realize they were entertaining beings sent even from God. You think of Abraham and Sarah and uh, other examples throughout uh, Scripture. So he says show hospitality. So you can see that the level of hospitality was raised very high. It was a spiritual virtue. And you can see why this woman would be convinced that she is doing the right thing. She has brought these people or this person into her home. She's giving, she's contributing, she's giving of herself, her place, her food, and even her family, and she's giving to herself to be hospitable. However, John brings up that there is something that is always more important than hospitality, and that that is truth. So perhaps a well-intentioned woman had done this, and John had heard about it, and he's giving her instruction inspired by God's Holy Spirit, and this personal letter becomes a very public impact for the early church as to how they were to handle this. Christians that traveled all throughout Rome had kind of torn down the walls of different kingdoms and societies and cultures. The Pax Romana, you could kind of travel. There was a law sort of throughout the land, a common law. You could travel from place to place much easier than you could at any other point in human history. And so people are having to interact in a very different way way and so christians sometimes are confronted with issues that they're trying to figure out along the way and so when someone comes into their midst and begins to teach something that is contrary to scripture how do they approach it now i want us to understand as we look to the book and look to the notes this chapter is not indicating that you are not hospitable to these people that's not the command you're supposed to love but love in truth it's not saying that you can never have someone come in your home that is not a Christian or that doesn't believe in Christ. I know people that will uh, you have a Jehovah's Witness that will come knock at the door and they will not let them through the threshold and they'll kind of quote from Second John, saying, "I cannot let you into my house because you don't believe in Christ the way I do." They won't have other people that are not Christians into their home. It's not saying that someone cannot come into your house. But what it's speaking here is the submission to their authority and the influence that someone had begun to consistently have in their life. It's not saying you can never associate, you can never talk, that you got to just start some uh, group or sect of people over here and never interact with people that don't believe in Christ. No, we're actually to bring people to Christ. But the address here is the fact That in the church, and particularly in in this woman's individual life, that the influence and authority of false teachers had started to become an issue. And so as we look at it, we see why that would be a big deal. Five times, notice this in the first four verses. Five times in four verses, he speaks to truth. What is he emphasizing? He says, ma'am, we'll use the word ma'am instead of lady, ma'am, truth is important. And the Bible teaches clearly on truth. We give you a number of verses there that you can look up, kind of like your own little study. Deuteronomy 32, 4, it says that God is a God of truth without iniquity, just and upright. John 14 and John 1, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. There is no other truth outside of Christ. Daniel 10 refers to the scripture of truth. And the Bible talks about the absence of truth, or those that do not follow God's truth. It calls them lies or liars. And so you have two contradicting things in this world, and that is the truth of God and everything else that is a lie. From the very beginning of mankind, you have uh, Satan come in and he attacks God's creation. He attacks the people that God had created in his image. How does he do it? He brings in deceit a lie and he questions the truth of god and so john begins his epistle by saying truth 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 if you will stick to truth it will help you in this situation it'll help how you handle this and so i want you to notice I, I will, i'll quote from one thing i'll give you a, kind of an illustration picture and then we're going to get to some application tonight notice first Timothy chapter 3 verse 15 calls the church the pillar and ground of the truth. Now it's interesting, Timothy, who he's writing to, is the pastor of the church of Ephesus. I'm going to put it up on the screen tonight. You can Google it pretty easily. You just search Temple of Diana, and that is was in the city of Ephesus. And if you ever Google it, it's not there today. Portions and remnants and uh, different ruins of it are there. But historically, there's drawings, there's pictures, and there's descriptions and historical writings of the great temple of Diana in Ephesus. And it was this kind of like you would picture this Greek-Roman-influenced piece of architecture, and it's got this peaked roof at the top with carvings of the goddess Diana and all of her uh, things underneath it and showing her power. But around the entire thing, it was supported by pillars. 127 columns or pillars that were lifted up. And so as he writes to Timothy, it would have been a very clear vision in his mind. He says, look, the church is the pillar, the foundation, the ground that lifts up truth to this world and he would have very easily been able to visualize yes like these pillars hold up this false god diana the church is to be this massive group of pillars holding up truth what is truth god is truth and god's word is truth we are to be a monument as a church to truth we exist to represent and proclaim the truth of the gospel and ask yourself for a second what does your life most lift up? What does your life most display? And notice it doesn't say a part of truth or a portion of truth or a verse of truth, but the whole of God's word, who God is, how he's interacted with his people that he created and how he sent his son and the, how we know him in those truths of scripture. That's what we're to lift up. I want you to notice he says in his first few verses that he says he loves her, but he loves her based in the truth. He says in verse 3, there's blessings of God, grace, mercy, peace be with you, but it says that comes through truth. And then in verse 4, truth is not just intellectual knowledge. He says, I was glad to hear that your children walk in truth. He says, I'm not just glad you know it, but you're living it. It's practically applied to life. And so, I want to get to just a practical point tonight. We're really going to get into the, kind of the crux of Second. John. John next week. But before we do, I want to just take a moment and look at the first four verses, and I want us to note John's example of how to help someone. How is he going to help her? Now, this is a woman who is a believer. Notice it says in the first few verses that he loves her, and all evidently she is very known. I don't think he's just trying to boost up her ego here whether she she has some sort of leadership role amongst those early christians as far as her influence and her example that people were looking to her and how she is raising her children how she helped those that began the church that are there if it's in ephesus she's probably a great help to timothy it doesn't tell us a whole lot but it says evidently her fame has kind of spread this church got started at ephesus and there's this one woman who serves christ in an unbelievable way and john says I love you in truth, and everybody that knows about you knows of you loves you as well. And so we know that she's a believer, and yet she seems that she has taken someone into her home that is a false teacher. doesn't say that she has agreed with the false teacher, but she has made a decision in how she's going to associate with something that is not from God's Word and that is not truth. And I want us to notice tonight for a minute in a practical way how does John help a real believer who has tied themselves to something that is not directly from Scripture? How does he do that? And I want you to notice it's not how we may think, he does not blister her up one side and down the other. Notice he writes the letter to the individual. Not to the church. He doesn't put it in 1 John. He could, it's, it's this long. He could have t- attached that to 1 John and said, oh, by the way, let me address you about this as well. He could have addressed her in the book of 1 John, but he doesn't. He addresses her individually as a believer of someone that she has come to this place and she's believing something that is not real truth or is emphasized in a different way. So how does he help her? He doesn't blister her. He doesn't call her out in some public embarrassing way. He does not give her an ultimatum. And he does not rebuke her in a way that would break her faith. But notice what he does. And we could follow the example. Letter A, he encourages her in who she is. Notice in verse number one. The elder unto the, notice this, elect lady. The word lady is a term of high esteem. It's curiosity. They actually would even use it as a name. It would be like naming your child grace, love, or peace. It's, but it's a term lady. He They named her this. But notice he says, the elect lady. He says, you're chosen. You're a child of God. And so he does not begin his discourse with her by insulting her. He doesn't begin by addressing her in a demeaning way. He doesn't talk about her like she's dumb. He doesn't talk about her like if she does this, it's going to ruin her life. She says, hey, you're a child of God. That's why I want to come to you with this elect she's a chosen child of god notice he confirms his own personal christ-based love for her i love you in truth then notice he expresses the love of all who are truly all the others who are truly rooted in truth he says look here's what he says god loves you i love you and your christian brothers and sisters love you he he does not say if you don't get this right we're going to leave you forever we're going to attach you and leave you he says no God loves you, you're chosen in him, that will not change. I love you based on the truth of who God is, and that won't change. And other Christians, if they really are truly part of God's family, they love you as well. So he begins helping her by affirming who she is in the Lord and by who she is in God's family. Then notice, the next, She gives he, John gives confidence that this issue can be sorted out. Notice verse 2. But where does he place the confidence for the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever? Notice he identifies that they will address the issue for the sake of truth. Notice the beginning of verse two for the truth's sake. He says, hey, we love you. You're a child of God. We're going to address something that's an issue that you seem to be a little confused on. We're going to address you in this for the sake of real truth, for the sake of God's word. We're going to address this. But then he declares that that truth lives in us, that it is God's word to us. And as the Christian, God's spirit living in us. He does not say, I have all the answer. He says, look, for the truth's sake and by the truth that is in both of us, we are going to figure this out. And then notice, he holds holds to the promise that truth will be with them forever that truth does not abandon them in difficult circumstances, even when it is uncomfortable. Even when this woman has to go to the people that she's letting live in her house and say, ah, I've made a mistake. It's going to be an uncomfortable situation. But he says, hey, look, the truth is with you, the truth is in you, and the truth will not leave you if you're a child of God. And so he encourages her in who she is. He encourages her in where she will find the answer in the truth. And then... He speaks to the permanence of their relationship and his desire toward her and being in God himself. Notice verse 3. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. He says, hey, look, you're a child of God. I love you as a child of God. God's children love you. We have the truth, and that's a glorious thing that we have, God's truth in us and through us. And then he says, and I only want to wish you grace And peace. He doesn't say, I write to you to prove myself right and you wrong. He says, I write to you in grace and in peace and in love and in goodwill because I am related to you in God the Father and the Son. And he says, being related to you in that way, we cling to truth and we display love. And then in verse number four, I rejoiced greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth. Notice what he does. He shows joy in their growth. And their life as believers. Now, I just want you to think about this for a moment. It, to be honest, throughout the day today, the message has kind of completely changed as far as where we're going because of how impact, It least for myself personally, how impactful those first four verses are. That here's a man who is gonna speak to a woman who is a believer in Jesus, who has attached herself to something that is not biblical and scriptural, is not even Christian. And we know that it's not an insignificant issue. Notice, if you would, in verse number, eight, uh, verse number 7, what does he say? He's not saying false teachers that say some frivolous thing or preference or opinion or, or, or some little nuance of their faith. Notice he says, deceivers come into the world, notice this, who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. He says, people that say that Jesus is not the son of God, or that Jesus is not a man, and that maybe he's God and he came, but he may have looked like a man, but he was not a man. Well, there's a problem with that, because God desired a sacrifice to be of mankind. He has to be fully God and fully man. This is a big deal. And so here is John addressing a believer about a very serious issue, but he does it by saying, look, I'm attached to you because of who you are in the Lord. I love you because of who we are in the Lord. We can find truth because it's not from me, it's from the Lord. And then he does not demean her. She has made a mistake. If this is what she's doing, she has made a mistake. But notice what he says to her. I had joy when I found out that your children are walking in obedience to the commands of Scripture. He does not discount the rest of her life and the rest of what's going on in her world he does not take away from her all the spiritual growth that she has had because she has made one mistake he doesn't do that he does not then try to argue against the rest of her life and prove to her that she is some evil thing and she didn't really know it no he says i understand you have attached yourself to someone and people who have made serious errors, who are not Christians. It's a real serious issue. But he also can take joy in what growth the woman and her children do have. And what an example for us. How do we help others? Some of you may have children, your own children, grandchildren. You may have friends, co-workers that say that they are Christians and yet they are away from the Lord or they disagree with you in one way or another, or there's an issue in their life, or a sin, or a fault in their life that is standing out in your mind. Maybe the Holy Spirit has even laid it on your heart. You can address those things. We're not called to ignore them. And yet John gives us this example of exactly how we can do it. He does it in love. He does it in confidence in God's truth. He does it rejoicing that there is growth. And he does it in a way that is not personally demeaning or angry or in a spirit outside of, notice, outside of love and truth. He addresses both. So I want you to think tonight about your own life. About what it is in your life. who, Who you may be seeking to help spiritually that has a real spiritual issue in their life. And I want you to think about the example that John gives for us in his letter by the leading of God's Spirit. This is how God would have us deal with each other. And I think that's, that's important. Whether it's someone within our church, your family, your neighbor, your coworker that says that they're a Christian, another church, whatever it may be. But God has given Christians the same Father, the same Savior, and the same Spirit. And He expects us to handle each other in a wise, prudent, loving way. And we ask him to help us do that. You can look at the back. There's just a few thoughts on resolving issues and differences. We're not going to get into that tonight. If we hold it, stick in your Bible, bring it back next week. We'll address some of that next week as we get to it too. But just some things to sort of think on as we walk through. Helpful, small book, but helpful book in the life of Christians. Who can you help? Because ultimately that's John's goal. And you see that. His goal is not to be right. His goal is not to embarrass His goal is not to hurt or harm but is to help lord thank you for your word we trust it that it is true and we thank you for the love and the truth that you've poured into it you came as jesus christ as as you're known by name the son of god fully god fully man and you came bearing the truth of god with all the love of god wrapped inside So we ask that we would, in the same way, bear your truth and do it in love. Do it to those that are other Christians. And even as this woman's going to be called, she's going to be called to handle non-Christians in truth, but with love. So regardless of who we're interacting with, we know we are called to both of these things. We are called to anchor ourselves in truth, and from the truth, display great love and we praise you for it in Jesus name amen take a look if you would (coughs) at the back of your bulletin tonight we can pray over a few things Uh, not a lot of add-ons in particular this week and so we'll jump right into uh, praying but if you would remember Patricia Wilmoth in particular had uh, shoulder replacement surgery today I tried to call this afternoon and Just check. I have not heard back yet as to how that went. I'm sure uh, they were thinking about sending her home today. They weren't sure. Uh, Depending on her pain level, they may keep her overnight. And so, if you would be in prayer for her, and we'll give you an update Sunday as we have that. And then, several other friends and family that we've been uh, praying for and praying about and uh, praying for the ministries of our church as well. I'd like to take a couple minutes, and uh, if there's somebody sitting near you, I encourage you. Uh, Just turn around and and move a seat back, move a seat over, and let's spend three or four minutes tonight in prayer, share a request, and then ask the Lord to uh, work in our lives together. And we'll come back and be dismissed in prayer in just a moment.